0: This is the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. last show was fairly technical with Rabble, and this one will be a lot more practical for the non-technical parts of your life as a full-time programmer. My guest today is Chad Fowler. First, I should let you know that this interview was arranged initially via the secret channels of Hoodwinked. I hope I don't get kicked out just by mentioning it uh, on this show, but... Usually I send an email, but for this interview I made a post on Chad's blog via Hoodwinked, and he was omniscient enough to read it and respond. So I think that's some kind of accomplishment right there. Chad has been a consistent member of the Ruby community for quite a few years. He has co-hosted and organized the Ruby conference, which was crazy and amazing this year he's contributed the Ruby gems distribution system and recently he published a book with the pragmatic programmers entitled my job went to india fortunately for us his job did go to india and he returned to write a less than lousy book about promoting yourself staying technically relevant and staying employed while doing something that you love so welcome to the show
1: thank you very much jeffrey
0: i start started by saying that I uh, think this is a great book. I put it on my bookshelf next to other classics like The Mythical Man Month. And, of wow. course, part of that is because they both start with M.Y. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it is a, <laughs> a great book. Moving along. Uh, many people look at outsourcing and, and they're afraid of it, and yet you went over, you worked in India for, I think, over a year... Uh, why do you, did right. you choose to go do that? Did you seek that out, or was it just something part of your job that was something that you had to do?
1: Oh, I definitely sought it out. I had a, an interest in Indian culture and had actually been learning Hindi for about a year before I went, and uh, I'd like to say that I I had the foresight to go to you know, kind of better my career and to do research into the... Indian outsourcing situation, but actually what I wanted to do was I wanted to make better software, and I was working in a big corporation under the constraint of having to do outsourcing to India, and uh, we had the opportunity to set up our own insourcing offshore arrangement, and I wanted to have control. I wanted to make sure that uh, we got the best people and we set up the best processes we could to develop great software. So that's how I ended up going.
0: That's amazing. And reading through the book, you go through a lot of details, not only technical, but cultural. I bet it was quite a shock to live in a completely different culture. But I guess if you spoke a little little or a lot of Hindi, that would have helped.
1: Yeah, it was a culture shock. Um, And you can't really prepare for it. You know, I had read Culture Shock India, and I had a lot of Indian friends. Um, But... And I think you know from being in Asia yourself that when you travel overseas to uh especially eastern cultures, you can't you can't really prepare yourself for what you're going to encounter. It is
0: so different, especially you know, I've been to Europe and at least you can kind of make out the the signs and a lot of the culture is similar, even though that's different, but Asia is a whole other whole nother deal. That's right. Well, it, uh, you mentioned it briefly, but I lived in Taiwan for the past two years, was technology coordinator at an American school, and it was quite an adventure. It was a lot of fun, learned a lot of things. But many books that I read over there or since then said that international work experience often doesn't translate to better jobs or better pay in one's home country when, when you come back. But for you, it worked out well. What kind of things do you think helped you in that process was it just your experience in what you're actually doing over there or was it becoming a famous book author with the pragmatic programmers
1: <laughs> well if anyone says that international work experience won't help you with your career they're just plain wrong okay um and the reason for that is the world is getting more global um, especially in the IT industry, it's getting more global. And this is something I talk about in the book. If you want to be successful in today's IT environment, you need to know how to work with other cultures. That applies to whether you're working for a big corporation that's doing outsourcing to India or China or somewhere else, or even if you're working on open source projects or using open source software. You know, in the Ruby community, A very good example of that is we interact with people from Japan. So the ability to to, uh, cross cultural boundaries is very important, even in the Ruby community. So for me, I think uh, the number one thing that I did that has made my experience in India pay off is that I considered my time in India to be a, a crash course in Indian culture. I didn't just go over and you know look for McDonald's and Pizza Hut and whatever else, but I really kind of tried to get inside the skin of an Indian software developer, and uh, you know we were talking about culture shock earlier. The biggest culture shock that I experienced that I didn't expect was the shock of going from the American software development culture to the Indian software development culture. Okay. That's even that's even a bigger difference between the American culture and the Indian culture in the general sense. Well wow.
0: What? Uh, well, you go, in, go into a lot of the details in the book about that. But what were some of the biggest things that were were different or shocking to you about that?
1: Well. Um, I guess the, the initial shock was I was going to Bangalore, and Bangalore is called India's Silicon Valley. So you go to a place like this, and I thought you know this would be similar to – I was living in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, a very small place, and I thought it would be similar to going to the real Silicon Valley. I was looking forward to being immersed in this kind of deep software development community and finding a bunch of really great software developers What I found, though, was that in the Indian software development community, people weren't really as passionate about software development as uh, the people in, say, Silicon Valley might be. And it was really more of a 9-to-5 mentality, although as as opposed to -to 9-to-5, it was more like 10 a.m. to sometimes midnight or 2 a.m. People have a very strong work ethic once they left the office it was about family and you know everything but software development so whereas you know people in the US people like you and I were into ruby and rails and all this stuff you won't find many people in India that are into that right now until the jobs start demanding that they're into it and that was really the the biggest culture shock in terms of the software development culture that i found is that people don't really get into the new bleeding-edge or even leading-edge stuff until it's called for by their jobs and their clients.
0: Well, that leads nicely to uh, the whole point of this po- podcast, which is Ruby on Rails, and if you mentioned it at least briefly a couple times in the book, one of the big things that people are excited about with Rails is making it possible for small teams to produce a really killer website that would have previously taken... 10 or 20 programmers and definitely in India many programmers are put onto uh, different jobs. Do you think Rails is a threat in general just worldwide to the demand for programmers because a lot fewer programmers are needed or is this an opportunity for people to to take advantage of that?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think it's, it's an opportunity for great programmers. But, you know, Rails is not the first technology to come along to allow people to be productive like this. Sure. I mean, you look back at the first online store created by Paul Graham's company, written in Lisp, um, using continuations and all kinds of advanced features. They were able to do things like change the running application on the fly. You know, he talks about in, in some of his essays... Um, and more recently, Avi Bryant Seaside, which is written in uh, Smalltalk. Avi Bryant sort of a former Ruby community member. Um, There are some ultra-productive technologies available, and there have been for a long time, to develop these kinds of things with small teams. But what you won't find is the mediocre programmers that really our industry is rampant with right now You won't find them developing killer websites with small teams and and condensed timeframes, whether they're using Rails or J2EE or PHP. What you will find is the remarkable programmers using a remarkable technology to do remarkable things. And I don't believe that that represents a threat in terms of the job market, because what we're talking about is a very uh, special focused group of people, and a very small percentage of programmers available, developing a very small percentage of the applications that are going to be developed over the next several years. How do you get to be
0: a top-notch, very skilled developer? I'm sure everybody, well, not everyone, but many people want to know the answer to that question you talk about being the worst musician in the band trying to team up with other people who are better than you so you can learn from them but then we have these small teams for you for example you know I've been freelancing ex- you know full time the last 6 months or so and doing a lot of that out of my home small teams maybe I'm working with two or three other programmers maximum but they're spread around the world or whatever how can a rails programmer go about improving oneself and learning from other people who are a lot more skilled in order to gain those kinds of skills.
1: Well you're kind of asking two questions. So I'll okay. start with the the general question of how do you become how do you become a remarkable software developer? And a big theme of my book, I mean of course the default answer is read my book, but yeah. A big theme of my book is to do things in your career, to make your decisions with sort of a plan and intention, and most importantly, passion. If you don't have passion for software development, you will not become a remarkable software developer, period. And I actually recommend in the book that for those reading that don't feel that they fall into that category, it might be a good time to do something else. Because the, the industry is changing, it's, it's a time of great opportunity for people who are passionate, for people who want to create their own destiny. And things like Rails becoming ubiquitous really help drive that along. But it's also a really bad time to be kind of the late 80s, 9 to 5, uh, sit-in-a-cubicle-all-your-life sort of programmer. So having passion is the number one thing. You're talking about the being the worst musician in the band analogy that I use, um, and kind of wondering how you do that, you know, especially when you're working in a small team. I think the message around that, uh, this for those of you that haven't read the book, this is a, based on a quote by Pat Metheny, who he says his his advice to young musicians is to always try to be the worst musician in every band you're in. And the idea behind that is being surrounded by great musicians will make you better. And so, of course, we can apply that in the software development field. Always be around great software developers or great business people. If you're in small businesses, you you need to really understand the business. So be around creative entrepreneurs with great ideas. Most importantly, don't get comfortable. Don't get comfortable being the best and don't be afraid to be challenged that's really what the message is when I talk about being the worst musician in every band you're in. So how do you do that with a small team? Well, if you're working with any other person, that's one way you do it. If you're a consultant working by yourself, choose your clients carefully. Choose the clients that will challenge you, the projects that will challenge you, and the people that will help you grow when you work with them. And regardless of what kind of work you do, Start up open source projects and try to pull in people or or latch on to people that you respect and admire. In my own career, I've done that with a lot of great people in the Ruby community, including Dave Thomas, the publisher of my book. Contribute patches, watch them rewrite the patches, and, and learn from those experiences.
0: That's a great suggestion. I know for me personally, putting out just a few small open source projects that I started... I've learned a lot from people putting back patches, and and not only do I learn, but then it's practically, I can use the things that they write, the features they add, all that kind of stuff. It's a huge opportunity. Well, back uh, in mid 2000, big tech bubble burst, maybe that's still happening. In any case, I knew a lot of people who were experts at Older standard languages said, Ok Kobol, a variety of things. Of course, many of those are still in use today. But by learning Ruby, by learning Rails, I feel like I'm on the cutting edge. I'm learning these things. But dare I say it, someday Rails, Ruby, going to be eclipsed by something else. Um, how many, uh, many people at RubyConf were talking about Different languages learning IO or Haskell, or I guess there's a new one coming up called Wheat or whatever. How, what, do you have a strategy, or how should one who feels like, hey, I'm already on the cutting edge, how can I stay on that cutting edge?
1: Well, I think if you believe you're on the cutting edge, and maybe you are, but if you believe you're on the cutting edge, that's actually a red flag. Okay, um, and especially in an environment like the Rails environment, I you know I love Ruby and I love Rails, but Rails got to where it is partially by being so incredibly dogmatic. So I mean, the entire culture around Rails is one of dogma. Sure. What that means is that you can kind of fall into the trap of believing in this. in in the Rails way believing that you're on top of the industry and that everyone else is silly especially those J2EE and .NET developers and you may be at risk of missing something important that's going on so a, a certain amount of humility in the choices you make is kind of important as a software developer Maybe Ruby isn't the greatest thing that's ever been invented. Um, Maybe it's not the greatest thing that will ever be invented. I'm sure that that it isn't. Um, There are plenty of things around, like you talked about IO. There were even things that were created in the 70s, like Scheme and Smalltalk, from which there's still a lot to learn. Um, And it would also be a big mistake right now, I think, to to cast aside the mainstream technologies, you know, .NET and J2E, the big enterprise things everybody makes fun of in the Rails community. There's a lot to learn from those technologies, and there's a lot to learn from COBOL. There's a reason that COBOL is so popular, and it's not just marketing. What is that reason? Why has it stayed around all this time? I think that's the kind of thing that you need to do. You need to kind of Go to both ends of the spectrum the bleeding edge beyond ruby and rails as well as the kind of old guard that has has seen a ton of success and and experience as much as you uh, as you can of those various uh areas of technology
0: it was one, one thing i like about the ruby community in general is it seems that there's a appreciation of history a desire to move forward, but a, a long-term view of things as well.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, if you start getting into small talk, you'll realize, wow, this is, you know, Ruby is this with a different syntax. But then you start getting into Lisp, some of the things that happened in the 60s and 70s, and you realize, wow, Ruby is this with a different syntax. So it's amazing how much Ruby has stolen from the past. And uh, that is a nice thing about the Ruby community. It kind of gives you an accessible, pragmatic environment in which you can do things like call CC and closures and all kinds of advanced language techniques that don't exist in C Sharp or Java or some of the other mainstream technologies to today.
0: Changing topics a little bit, you've been an active supporter and I think it contributed to the Ruby Gems system. Why do you think it's taken so long for that to be a, a core part of Ruby? There were talks that even in the 1.9 or 2.0 that it's going to be a standard part. Do you think that's going to happen or what is it that's keeping Ruby Gems from being standard?
1: I think it will happen. Um, and of course, this is the subject of much debate. Um, the reason that, that I think it has taken a long time is one, um, you know we're at Rubygem 0.8.11 at the time of this recording. and we're not at 1.0 And so the Ruby Gems team, we haven't really been pushing to get it into Ruby until it's you know at least kind of a 10 release. We're getting close to that in terms of features. Um, but the other big one is... RubyGems is not like, say, a string manipulation library or um, an XML parsing library or something in that if you're doing string manipulation you probably have some utility you're doing and you can't really argue with With it conceptually, you can only argue with and improve the implementation, right? RubyGems, on the other hand, has taken package management and and it has done some pretty unusual things. You know, to use Rails speak, it's done some very opinionated things with package management. Uh, Most notably, the way that we've structured the directories, the way we support multiple versions of a gem on a system at once, and that sort of thing and therefore there have been a very small few people that have been very passionately vocal about their dislike of RubyGems. So when you're talking, when you're Matt's, you know, and you're looking at the community and you're thinking about which things to include in the standard distribution, if there's all this kind of vocal, passionate discontent or kind of argument, it may take some time before you decide, yes, I want to go ahead and put this in. Because after all, you're not really affecting the language, but you are affecting the experience that everyone is going to have with the language. So Max kind of has to buy into the opinions of Ruby Gems. That being said, I think he has now sort of bought into the opinions of Ruby Gems. For uh, and he's decided that he'd like to include Ruby Gems in potentially the next uh, release of Ruby, which will be one eight four. He's left that up to us with the caveat that he would like to fix some things that cause, for example, Debian users to get upset. And if we can fix those things, then he will add them to Ruby. He will add RubyGems to Ruby, and he will actually modify the core of Ruby to better support RubyGems. So we can do away with the require hacks and the things that we've done in hopes that we would someday be integrated into the core and not have to do them anymore. if we don't fix those kind of little compatibility issues, then he will allow us to add RubyGems to uh, the core distribution, but without those modifications um, to the core of Ruby to better support the RubyGems system. So it's kind of up in the air right now, but I would guess, being one of the people that's going to make that decision, I would guess that we don't end up putting RubyGems into 184, because we want to put it in and have it really be done right. And RubyGems is ubiquitous at this point. I mean, it has become the de facto standard. And that's really what we were after, is an easy way for people to manage and deploy and install Ruby libraries and applications. We've kind of gotten there, although we have this extra step of installing RubyGems after installing Ruby. So the urgency to get it into the distribution isn't as high as it used to be.
0: I guess the with Rails reliance on it has maybe caused a lot of other people to install Ruby gems who maybe otherwise wouldn't have, but they maybe want to take a look at Rails or something, and, they, and so they
1: end up doing it. But definitely, um, I, Ruby gems is responsible for at least a million and a half libraries and applications being installed just off of the central gem server at this point. And about half of those are rails related pieces of software,
0: so that's yeah, that's quite a quite an impact. well I think, I mean I think it's a great system. definitely, there are some more exotic things that could be done down at OdeO Rabel mentioned that it would be ideal where you could require a specific version of a library, and then that particular section of code would only have access to that and different parts of different libraries could require other versions of the same library and still keep it separate but it seems like that would require more of the selector namespacing and all those exotic things that they were talking about
1: as possibilities for Ruby
0: 2.0 yeah exactly
1: selector namespaces specifically what will be required to do something like that either selector namespaces or some really nasty hacks that probably wouldn't be worth doing <laughs>
0: Well, to finish up with, give us a target. How many people do you think are going to be at RubyConf next year?
1: Well, we've heard we've heard guesses of five hundred to eight hundred. Um, I was guessing a hundred this year, so I was off by a factor of two. So I'm not really going to guess for next year. Um, okay. I I would say that it's probably going to be. Closer to 800 than 500, though. Wow.
0: Um,
1: on that same note, we are about to announce, and I may be potentially announcing it at this point, the official first International Rails Conference, which will be held in uh, Chicago on, from June 22nd to June 25th of 2006. Um, currently, we have... Uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen, of course, and Dave Thomas lined up as keynotes, and we're probably looking at a couple of other kind of big-name keynote speakers as well as Rails core team members and the sort of faces you would expect at such a conference. We're going to end up doing a a three-day conference, or sorry, a a four-day conference um, with the Rails conference, and we're targeting capping that at about 400 people. So that's June 22nd through June 25th. Uh, the first international Rails conference.
0: Very exciting. I'm sure many people are going to be uh, interested and excited about that. Are you helping to organize that as well?
1: Yes. It's a, it's a Ruby Central production in the same way that uh, the Ruby conference has been for the past several years. And uh, Rich Kilmer of InfoEther and I are taking the lead on organizing that from the Ruby Central side.
0: Well, you guys did a fantastic job on RubyConf, and if you're involved, I'm sure it's going to be even twice as good for uh, the Rails conference, so that's exciting to hear about.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. It's been good to Thank talk you. to you and very provocative things you had to say. If, for our listeners, if you haven't yet, you can go get yourself a copy of... My Job Went to India, it's a great book. It'll help you not only as a Rails or Ruby developer, but as a programmer in general and as a
1: person. So, Thank you very much, Jeffrey. All right.
0: Well, thanks for listening. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast, and we'll see you next time.